Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Nice M&A trade here in the financial space here today. We got Capital One Financial. They're acquiring Discover Financial on a $35 billion all-stock deal, so no need to go to the bond market. They're going to create the largest U.S. credit card company by loan volume, giving the combined entity a stronger foothold against some of the big uh, Wall Street behemoths. Let's see what's behind the deal here and what the numbers show us. Ben Elliott, he's consumer finance analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us uh, via Zoom uh, from Washington, D.C. All right, Ben, what's Capital One thinking here? Is this another one of these deals that's really driven by scale? Yeah, so everything's driven by scale in the credit card business, Paul. Um, and the big thought here from Capital One is that if they can acquire this sort of rare and valuable thing that Discover has, which is um, a discrete proprietary payments network, um, then they can sort of start to compete with Visa and MasterCard on a, on, a, on a much bigger scale over time, and they're paying a premium for it. Ben, is the timing at all a surprise, just given kind of the issues that Discover had towards the uh, end of 2023? So it leaves Capital One with a a potential legal overhang. Uh, the legal issues are not settled yet at Discover. Um, they've had a couple of new issues that are sort of outside of the scope of, of what they've been dealing with over the past couple of years. Um, Discover's been talking about sort of a $500 million a year run rate of additional compliance expense. So that's sort of a burden that that Capital One is going to have to take on with this acquisition. But uh, I think it's probably pretty well understood the scope of that. And I think it's, it's probably priced into the deal. All right. So give us a sense of the the size of Visa, the, I guess the Visa network, the MasterCard network, and now this new combined uh, network. Is it, is it competitive to Visa and, and MasterCard and I guess even Amex? So historically, it's uh, completely non-competitive. Okay. Um, Visa and MasterCard together are about $10 trillion in domestic U.S. credit and debit card volume, and Discover is 
about 550 billion. Ooh. So it's it's always been this sort of the tiny, uh, you know, redheaded stepchild of the <laughs> of the large payment networks. But you know, if you add to that Capital One's hundreds of billions of dollars of uh, credit card loans, and and you sort of extrapolate future growth there, it has the potential to sort of compete more like an American Express, which is closer to one and a half trillion. Ben, I feel like we can't talk about deals without the threat of regulatory scrutiny. What does this bring and what could the FTC raise any red flags about? Yeah, so I'm obviously not a regulatory expert. Uh, Paul knows well that we have a, a great M&A analyst, Bloomberg Intelligence, Jenry. Um, and I'm sure you guys will ask her later. But uh, overall, this deal, I think, will be relatively sort of non-offensive to regulators. Um, you know, Discover is historically not been very competitive with the large networks. So actually bringing sort of the power of Capital One to bear will make it more competitive with the large networks, which has the potential to, to give customers a real sort of fourth alternative. Um, whereas in the past, you really only had one option, right? You get a Discover card. Um, it only has one sort of set of, of rewards. It's um, got a relatively low credit line versus some of the other offerings. It doesn't have sort of you know, high-end uh, travel rewards offerings. So I think if Capital One can start to issue some of its sort of higher-end cards on the Discover network, um, that could be pro-competitive, and that might make the deal somewhat more attractive to regulators. So I'm looking at MasterCard, the, the shares of MasterCard and Visa, each down maybe 2 3%. Do they really care here in terms of a response? You know, I think they're looking at this as, as um, sort of an interesting gambit um, it's definitely like, you know, it's a shot across the bow of Visa and MasterCard, but this is a huge, probably decades-long battle um, that Discover Network, backed by Capital One, will be fighting. Um, you know, they, they plan to keep the Discover branding in place for the most part and shift primarily debit card volume to Discover at first. So, you know, even in the first, call it three years of this transaction, they're not really going to be issuing uh, Capital One credit cards on the Discover Network. Um, and so that really puts off any concern for Visa and MasterCard, you know, into the medium to long term. Ben, in terms of kind of what these credit cards offer, uh, Discover, from my understanding, mainly cashback. Capital One has a range of some of those rewards cards. How does that impact potentially acquiring new customers and new users of for both companies or, I guess, the folded in company? Yeah, so I, I think that will make it a challenge for Capital One to issue um, some of its sort of high fee, high reward cards on the Discover Network, because historically, the Discover Network's only been used for a very limited cashback card with, with caps at, I think it's like $1,500 a quarter of cashback. Um, so for your high spenders, people who are putting tens of thousands of dollars on a credit card, um, that's not a very attractive offering. So that means that the brand has not been sort of in their minds um, as you know a potential credit card they might acquire. So. Capital One is going to have to do some relatively heavy lifting. And you see that in um, what is a very modest run rate synergy um, assumption in their in their sort of uh, deal model, which uh, only cuts back Discover's marketing costs about 10%. Um, so, you know, Capital One is going to have to do some pretty heavy marketing, I think, to start to leverage that network on the credit card side. American Express, what's the investment call there these days? Ben, what are investors thinking about Amex? You know, Amex is the super premium bastion of the highest spending, um, sort of most financially sound customers. Um, so that is a sort of, uh, you know, uh, it's sort of a, 
recession safe trade, if you will. Um, so, you know, when people are looking at the, the forward curve and they're, they're um, seeing rate cuts, you know, they're expecting a recession potentially. Um, they look at the Amex spender and think that this person will last the longest and, and have the sort of lowest um, level of charge offs to a potential recession. So that makes it very attractive. And additionally, uh, Amex has a ton of momentum in acquiring millennial and Gen Z high earning customers, um, which is the most valuable sort of wallet share that's out there. And Amex does it better than anyone else. So that also kind of makes them attractive to investors. Hey, Ben, here at Bloomberg LP, we recently switched our corporate credit card from one vendor to another. Why did that happen? Was that simply price? Somebody came along and said, hey, Bloomberg, we'll do it cheaper. Is that how that, that business goes? Well, obviously, I have no insight into that particular deal, but um, uh, you know, that can be a number of things. That can be the, the sort of reward structure. That can be the cost structure. Um, that could even just be you know simple sort of customer service and uh, applicability of, of sort of technology on the on the corporate fulfillment side. So you know, I, I don't really have any insight into what that particular yeah, me neither. Move was. It, it, it all works for me. Um, it all goes to Redo, keeper of the uh, whatever the card <laughs> is. Um, all right, Ben. So what is the big competitive overview of kind of consumer finance? Are we using more credit, more debit? more Venmo, what are kind of the big trends there? Yeah, so there's been a huge growth uh, in, in credit volume over the last couple of years, um, especially sort of in the post-pandemic period, there's been, been more of a secular shift away from cash. Um, as for the various sort of channels, right, um, credit is really attractive to higher end uh, consumers, people with more discretionary income, because that offers the huge valuable reward potential and then if you step down to uh, debit cards, there's some cash back, but for the most part, not a lot of rewards there, um, but there's some convenience. And then sort of the, the lower tier kind of um, FinTech payment systems, um, you know, they offer, they're sort of targeted at, at sort of younger sort of Gen Z, um, lower spenders, and they are the people who are exploring things like buy now, pay later, which is sort of a way to give credit to people who don't really have a lot of like credit history or uh, substantial earnings history. All right, Ben, thanks so much for that. Appreciate it. Ben Elliott, Consumer Finance Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, is joining us via Zoom on from Washington, D.C. And then there are those of us who walk around with a wad of cash because that's how you play. Well, who do you pay well, Who do you pay in cash? I got Very it. few people now. <laughs> Very few people now, and it used to be. I mean, but, I mean, you walk into a bar in the Jersey Shore, you got to put a 50 down on the bar to make sure you're Let them know you have business. Let them know you're serious. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to give them, like, tap my phone. I mean, they throw me out. But, no, you're right. I mean, you just don't use cash anymore. No. no. I only use cash at halal carts in New York City and my dive bars that I can't say their names because otherwise people <laughs> yeah. go to it. So we got to keep it secretive. But those are the only places I use cash. I know. It's crazy. So, um, but I mean, now it's just, I'm thinking, you know, one of the greatest companies or technologies in that space was Square. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that revolutionized it. I think for the local retailer, I mean, because all you have to do is stick that thing on your phone and then a local retailer immediately has the ability to kind of migrate to a, you know, a, a, you know, more of an electronic payment. That completely changed, especially here in New York City, where if you would go to a farmer's market before, you'd have to yep. worry about, do I have enough cash? What if I want to buy more things? Yep. Just tap to pay. It's yep. so much more simple. But So great company, Square. Yeah. Great ticker symbol, SQ. What do you do then? You change the name you of your company. Change to block. The block. I mean, you trade just, at 65 bucks down from a high of 281. Yep, just a crazy. Uh, let's change our name. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast 
Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Talking about Home Depot, the company reported some numbers here. Let's bring in Drew Redding. Drew covers all the home building stocks, which have just been ripping, really, for the last couple of years, because that's the only way to get a home is you got to build a new one. And he also covers all the companies that are around the home building industry, including HD. Uh, it's up about six-tenths of 1% here today. Drew, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, break down what you saw and heard from our good friends at Home Depot. Sure. So the 3.5% decline in same-store sales was pretty much right in line with what was expected. Um, you have to keep in mind though, coming into the quarter, the bar was pretty low for Home Depot. Um, they continue to face consumers who are pulling back in big ticket discretionary categories. So think things like flooring, cabinets, countertops. Uh, conversely, they're seeing relative strength in some of the smaller scale projects. So those big ticket projects are being deferred. We do think eventually they get completed, but that might be more of a 2025 story. But coming into this quarter, the, the real debate was around how 2024 was going to shape up. So they offered guidance suggesting that same-store sales would fall about 1%. And given what we heard from a handful of their suppliers over the last couple of weeks, which we're calling for a flat market, I think people it caught people a little bit off guard, ourselves included. Um, we do think that the first half is going to be comparatively weaker than the second half as rates start to pull back, and we think you could maybe get a little bit of a boost from the housing market. Drew, this may be a dumb question, but when I look at some of the consumer data that we've been seeing, we are seeing uh, rising 90-day credit card delinquencies. How do things like that, what does the normal spender at Home Depot look like? You're mentioning kind of a pullback on some of those bigger projects. What kind of demographic does Home Depot really see in terms of driving sales and kind of putting those numbers together? Yeah, so about 80% of Home Depot's customers are current homeowners. They typically have higher incomes, so they are higher spenders, and they're, they're a little bit more resilient of a customer. Um, I think where we're seeing the relative weakness is in some of the, the, the low-end spending, which has kind of gone away on the DIY side. But, you know, if we look big picture, what's happening in the home improvement market is we're seeing a reversion to more typical spending patterns. So if you think back to the pandemic, we had the share of PCE that went towards um, household durables was at an all-time record. And we've seen that moderate since really the first half of 2023. So we think that there's a bit more of a reversion that needs to take place through the remainder of this year, which is going to keep total industry sales muted. Um, you know, but you talked about the consumer. You also have the consumer out there who's battling with the, the cumulative impact of massive inflation over the last couple of years. So, you know, while we look at that head number, headline number and we see that it's moderating, it's really the cumulative impact that's kind of pressuring spending in the category. Hey, Drew, what's the, what do you think is a normalized top line growth rate for like a Home Depot? I'm mean, looking, you know, pre-pandemic, it was kind of a mid-single-digit grower, then of course exploded, you know, during the <clears throat> pandemic with some, you know, big double-digit gains. What do you think, what do you kind of model out here for top line growth? Yeah, I think, I think in a normalized environment, which we think we get back to in 2025, is probably in the 3 to 4% range as a baseline. Um, you know, there's a couple of industry factors that we think will support that. Like I mentioned, we think as rates start to moderate, perhaps as we get through this year, we think that you could start to see a boost from existing home sales. Remember, existing home sales are at the lowest level in more than 25 years. And we know that people who move spend about twice as much 
on remodeling as those who don't. So while we don't see um, total housing turnover re returning to, you know, kind of that five and a half level anytime soon, we do think the fact that things have been so depressed does serve as a tailwind as we move through the year. At the same time, you know, we've had over 40% increases in home prices since the pandemic. So homeowners equity right now is at all time highs. The average home has about $300,000 in equity. So we think that's a source of pent up demand for big ticket projects that that once again, as rates start to moderate, um, people will get more comfortable tapping that equity. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And Drew, with that in mind, you mentioned some of those big purchases, bigger projects. Uh, how much of that was pulled forward, though, during the pandemic when people were buying homes? We saw a booming market around the U.S., and it did seem like cash being relatively free with the, the surplus spending and stimulus checks that people were putting money into home improvement. Yeah, great question. And, and I think that goes back to the share of personal consumption that was spent on home improvement. It was a lot of that stimulus money that was out there for everybody. Um, in terms of the big ticket project, we think more of the pull forward was probably done in the DIY segment. That's really where you saw the boom in early in the pandemic. Um, that being said, we have seen contractor backlogs over the last couple of years be you know elevated compared to, to more traditional levels. So to some extent, it, it has been in both the DIY and big ticket category. But we do think that the big ticket category is where we're likely to see more growth for Home Depot as they go after the professional contractor, as they leverage you know, the age investments consumers are making because of the age of the housing stock, that pent up equity they have in their home. Hey, Drew, from an investment perspective, how do you differentiate Home Depot versus Lowe's? Yeah, so I mean, both of the stocks that you mentioned earlier, the, the housing names have, have ripped recently, I think. Home Depot, since the end of October, is up more than 30% because investors were placing their bets that the, the Fed rate hike cycle would come to an end. So I think they're trying to get out ahead of that and out ahead of that in, improvement in home sales. In terms of comparing the two, um, Home Depot has really benefited relative to Lowe's recently because of their exposure to that professional customer. It's driven you know, outside, outside um, same-store sales. It's driven better margins. 
And we expect that the professional contractor is going to be a relative area of strength going forward. Now, with that being said, Home Depot is trading at a premium to the market and one of the biggest premiums versus lows over the last decade. Um, you know, so to the extent that Lowe's is able to le leverage its investments in e-commerce and in their professional contractor business, that could be a, a, something to look out for. And Drew, as we mentioned, DR Horton, Toll Brothers, all these home builders building out uh, new apartments, new homes. Does that benefit Home Depot or Lowe's, or is that going to more benefit the likes of a Whirlpool? Yeah, so that's that's primarily more geared towards the building product manufacturers. Um, Home Depot and Lowe's business is more built around that remodeling market and less so on the new construction side. So what's the average ticket size of a Home Depot? Not, the reason I ask is I never really go there. So what's like an average <laughs> ticket size and is it different between Home Depot and Lowe's? They're, they're similar, probably somewhere between $75 and $90. And what we've seen more recently is that that average ticket size has come down, and that's one of the things that's pressuring same-store sales. And the reason that average tickets are coming down is because you don't have the same leverage to big ticket spending, those categories I mentioned earlier, like like flooring, like cabinets, like countertops. Those are some of the things that really drive that that growth. And with that pullback, we've seen a moderation in ticket. We were talking about the uh, sales declining for a fifth quarter in a row. When does that break out? Is it just easing comp numbers going to ultimately lead to a rebound? So that'll be part of it. I mean, the way we're looking at the market is that the second half outperforms the first half. I think Home Depot and the industry can start to return to growth later this year, kind of exiting 2024. And we think once we look ahead to 2025, that's when you start to see a more normalized growth environment in that, that low single digit range, call it. All right, so Home Depot, they're primarily a U.S. company. Did any of these companies think about opening stores outside the U.S.? Yeah, they have. I mean, both Home Depot and Lowe's have had um, businesses outside of the U.S. Um, Lowe's recently sold its business in Canada. Home Depot operates in Mexico as well. But for both of them, they've both made an effort over the last several years to really focus on the U.S. market. So that's been a, a strategic um, initiative for both of them just because they, they see that long-term growth um, in the housing market, and that's really where they want to focus their attention to. All right, Drew, great stuff as always. Appreciate getting some time. Drew Redding, he's a home builder analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us uh, via Zoom from the Bloomberg uh, Intelligence headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Some economic data uh, coming out. It's a little light today. We got more coming up later this week, but the leading index came out negative 0.4%. The consensus was negative 0.3%. So a little bit weaker there. Let's break it down. We had a negative revision as well to last month. Dana Peterson, chief economist at the conference board. So, Dana, talk to us about this leading index data point that came out today. What is it and what does it tell you? Sure, absolutely. Well, it was down again, it's been negative for more months and I can count over the last two years. Um, but the good news is that when we look at the six month average uh, 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 growth rate, it's no longer signaling recession, but it's still quite negative. 
And how does this play into kind of the the feeling around the economy and what this can mean for market watchers, for people kind of trying to guess what the Fed will or won't do, just given kind of some of the economic data we continue to be seeing? Well, the thing is that it does signal that the U.S. economy probably is going to slow probably over the second and third quarter, uh, maybe even starting now in the first quarter. We did get that pretty weak uh, retail sales data. Um, But the thing is that the labor market is still pumping out jobs. Wages are rising, so that could continue to support the consumer for some time. But I think that, you know, we are going to see slower economy, but that also means slower inflation. So I think all these pieces give the Fed cause to start looking at interest rate cuts probably around the middle of the year. So, I mean, again, I'm looking at just this over time in the leading index has kind of been, uh, you know, negative here since kind of, I don't know, March of 2022. I mean, how often, how predictive of is this index for the, the overall economy? Usually the leading index does a really great job in terms of portending recessions. Um, and that's because it captures a number of, of factors, certainly manufacturing activity, hours work, which is often linked to manufacturing activity, financial market indicators and credit conditions, and certainly expectations among businesses and consumers. And so all those things, um, it's done a very good job of pretending recession. This time around, I think it was a little challenge because we had a surge in services activity and also labor shortages meant that a lot of companies didn't let people go. And those are things that aren't really captured in the leading economic index. So maybe that's why it's been uh, signaling for recession for a long time, but we haven't actually had one. All right, Danny, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate you hopping on, uh, breaking down this data point. Danny Peterson, Chief Economist for the Conference Board, and again, the leading economic indicator, uh, came in a little bit weaker than expected this morning. It's kind of been, again, negative really since uh, for, you know, many quarters now. So the question is, what does that mean for the economy? You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. RJ Gallo joins us. He's the Senior Portfolio Manager of Fixed Income at uh, Federator Hermes. Um, you know, RJ, it's been a tough couple of years for you, Fixed Income. Guys, 2022 is just brutal. Uh, and thanks to November and December of last year, you had some positive gains, some pretty nice positive returns. This year, starting off in the red yet again, what's kind of your call here as you, as you look ahead in your fixed income space? Well, good morning. Um, you know, it has been a, a wild ride, but I think if you were to look in a, a fixed income 101 textbook, um, if you told a, a college student reading that textbook that inflation would rise to over 9% in short order, do you want to own bonds? Right. Yes or no? Uh, then, and then if you told them that that inflation would fall from over 9% to a three handle, maybe even a two handle in short order, then your answer would be different. Um, it's been a difficult time to be a fixed income portfolio manager, but I also think, uh, we've reestablished value in a market where yields have been suppressed for so long due to the subpar growth in the global post global financial crisis environment. The pandemic unleashed many forces. The most important one was. Uh, a series of inflationary forces, uh, and the bond market uh, paid the price. I, I think that price is in the past. I think that the returns, prospectively, are, are are much more attractive, vastly superior to what we saw in 2022. The fourth quarter of 23 was extraordinary. 
Um, but I think we're expecting mid single digit kind of total returns in a year that we face now as inflation is apt to settle. Uh, its recent bubbling has been a little unwelcome. Uh, and the economy is doing relatively well. A recession doesn't seem to be in the offing. Uh, but we think that the, this environment for fixed income, given yields that have reset to much more attractive, real positive mm -hmm. levels, still have a place for investors. RJ, what do you like in a environment that I would say continues to be relatively warm from an economic data perspective? Uh, well, I can tell you how we're positioning our fixed income portfolios. I mean, generally speaking, uh, you know, the, the interest rate volatility that we just alluded to, we think the worst is behind us. Uh, we've been constructed with a neutral to a slightly long duration at various points in the last six months. Uh, that's an expectation of the fact that we think inflation will resume a downward march and the Fed will ease uh, monetary policy, lowering rates because high positive real rates are not normal. Uh, the Fed has admitted that they're restrictive in their current positioning and that won't last. If inflation continues to, to march down towards 2%, the Fed will feel compelled to support uh, lower real rates as well. They don't want to maintain a restrictive policy when inflation's cooperating. The economy has been strong, it's very true. Um, in the fixed income space, I think a lot of money has been put to work uh, chasing credit. Um, why? Because with a strong economy should support profits. Uh, we've been a little underweight credit. Uh, number one, we had anticipated we'd have slower growth last year than we did. So that ended up being uh, 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 not helpful for our, our overall performance. Uh, at this point, though, we think the valuations have gotten very rich. Uh, so some slowdown in the economy uh, we think is apt to, to produce opportunities where spreads might widen a little bit uh, and relative value will be more compelling than what we're seeing now. So we are overweight uh, higher grade products. So we're still overweight mortgages, for example, in our multi-sector funds, uh, leaning long duration, as I mentioned, and then underweight IG high yield and commercial mortgage-backed securities where we think credit and valuation are not too compelling just yet. You know, RJ, I would say up until, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, people were certainly pricing in cuts and it was just a question of whether it was March and then the Fed took that off the table. Then it became, if you look at the WERP function, maybe May, maybe June. Now in the last week or so, I've actually heard, we had a guest come on and say, hey, you have to have a scenario where the next move is a move higher in rates. Does that seem reasonable to you in any case? Um, I can see why they would say that. I mean, so you remember we finished last year with this like torrid fixed income rally and yep. we were happy about it. You know, we were yeah. <laughs> constructive on bonds. It was great to see some positive returns, which we thought we would get by the end of the year. And it really all happened in that fourth quarter. Um, but the market overshot. The market had gotten to the point that some of the justifications I just mentioned for being constructive had been fast forwarded and baked into prices to a degree that wasn't sustainable by by the data. Economic data. Uh, is pretty clear. The economy is in pretty good shape. The labor market is still strong. Inflation is a lot lower than it was, but it's not low enough to justify six or seven eases that have been priced into the market, say, by December of last year. Um, we felt that data would come along to probably push back on the market a little bit more effectively than, say, Fed speak pushed back on the market. Uh, ultimately, what we saw was uh, that, that data has proven uh, more powerful pushback than speeches from the FOMC. <laughs> but the FOMC has made clear they aren't going to ease preemptively. They're only going to ease if the data continues to back up justification that inflation is declining and the Fed should be normalizing policy at a lower level. What is normal policy remains a key question, obviously. Um, the Fed suggests three eases in this calendar year as the median dot in the summary of economic projections. 
they still have a long run neutral Fed funds rate of two and a half percent. I would argue the bond market, if you look at forward rates, thinks it's about 100 basis points higher than that, give or take. I would side with the bond market on that. Um, that means that the, the bond market can, can, can rally some as the Fed eases and the economy slows. But absent a recession, I wouldn't be holding my breath for the 10 year to hit, you know, 3% anytime too soon. Uh, that's going to take a while. RJ, you mentioned economic data mattering. We have FOMC minutes tomorrow and then initial jobless claims, PMI. What data points are you looking at to get a better read on what the Fed can do and will do next? Uh, I mean, it's funny, you know, the Fed looks at the totality of the data. I love that expression. Um, but if you had to provide some insight on what you give greater attention to or greater weight, what you assign greater weight to, um, you know, the inflation data is fundamentally important. Uh, the Fed is, would be very happy to see real economic data, the data uh, portraying an economy that is continuing to expand, accompanied by declining inflation. That's, that's the soft landing. That's what they, that's what they want. Um, so I think the inflation data still is first and foremost the most important uh, in the broader scope of, of, of data stream that's, that's coming out. Uh, you know, that said, if the economy looks to be re-accelerating, then the reason that becomes a concern, I think, for the bond market is that you would be uh, more cautious about your expectations on inflation. Will inflation continue to decline if the economy, in fact, re-accelerates? That would be a real challenge for the market. That's the kind of data set that might feed expectations that maybe the Fed will tighten again. Um, I actually think that's highly unlikely. I think a Fed funds rate of five and a quarter to 550 is already clearly restrictive. You don't need to tighten again as much as keep it there longer. Uh, so keeping it there longer, if you, you know, Paul, you mentioned the work function before, th that would translate into the work function having to move. You'd have yep. to keep pushing out further and further into the future, your easing dates. So the Fed would react to data that portrays a stronger reaccelerating economy uh, and or sticky inflation by just holding the fork. You know, stay at five and a quarter or 550 longer, and then that will reprice markets as we've already seen uh, this year as, as the market had to reprice to higher expected yields after the uh, overshooting of last year. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, RJ, thanks so much for joining us uh, yet again. We always appreciate getting your thoughts. RJ Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager, Fixed Income, Federated Hermes, joining us via Zoom from uh, Pittsburgh. PA, one of my favorite towns, a uh, great town there. And Federate, one of the big, big uh, money managers in Pittsburgh. 
You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We had that surge, surge in the markets in November, December last year. Uh, where we had stocks just rallying dramatically, continuing here into, into this year to a certain extent. And even in the fixed income space, uh, you made your year in November and December uh, last year. The question is, did that pull some performance from 2024? Let's check in with somebody who kind of does this stuff for a living. Terry Spath, founder and CIO of Zuma Wealth, uh, based in Malibu, California, joining us via Zoom. So, Terry, how did you start this year? What was your view of 2024 going into the year, given that really strong finish we had to 2023. Yes, thank you for having me on, Paul. I, and there was a huge bond rally at the end of 2023, and that was great. But and that, that's on the heels of the expectations of rate hikes in 2024. And while we're not clear when that will happen, um, when rate cuts will happen, how many we will get, we are very confident that the Fed is going to cut rates in 2024. And it's not just because um, they feel as though they need to because maybe inflation is contracting or employment is getting or unemployment is getting too high. I think the Fed is really going to have to do some work and pencil out how expensive debt is becoming for the federal government. We've got um, rates that are much higher than they were three, four years ago when when the government was issuing five year paper. We've got a debt level that's double what it was in 2020. So those are going to be drags on the economy. And we do think that that's going to result in cuts in in interest rates at the federal level. And that will be a great tailwind, a continued tailwind for um, even just the safest bonds that you can buy out there. Terry, that's interesting because I feel like most times I've talked to people about a need for a cut. It does not is not spurred by the fact uh, that the national debt has moved has really picked up with the sharp move higher in interest rates. Just looking at the warp function, which I reference far too often. Right now, we're penciling in just south of four cuts this year. You look back coming into the year, it was north of six. Terry, where do we fall with these rate cuts, and what does that path look like? Well, I mean, I think that's a tough question to answer, um, you know, exactly when we're going to see rate cuts. Obviously, the markets got a little bit ahead of themselves looking for six cuts at sort of an unprecedented um, level. In fact, that was worrisome in our view, because if you're having six cuts, there's something really wrong in the economy. Um, that said, you know, they, they raised rates late. Um, I think the risk to our, our view is that they cut rates a little bit too slowly. But I do think that we're going to see that in 2024. And the reason for that is that unemployment is is low, meaning full employment has been achieved, which is one of the views of the Fed. We're in, you know, knocking on the door of 2% inflation level that they're looking for. And at, uh, you know, north of 5% on the Fed funds rate, and you've got it inverted, meaning short-term rates are higher than long-term rates. And that, that's been the case now for a while. That doesn't make sense. I think the Fed is going to need to uninvert the curve. And so we'll see that over the course of this year. And just to do like a little bit of math on that, if you've got a five-year treasury bond that's paying 4% and you get a 1% cut, you're getting another, you know, three, 4% in return. So on a five-year treasury, you can earn a high single-digit return. That'll probably happen in 2024. And that's not a lot less than what we would expect in the stock market, but with a lot safer um, 
I guess, characteristics. So and while, you know, just to wrap it up, I mean, what, when will that happen in 2024? We're not sure, but we're pretty confident it will happen over the course of this year that we'll see um, at least three, four cuts. So Terry, if, if, if I do think there's going to be some cuts here, constructive for stocks for sure, do I stick with those Magnificent Seven or maybe they're Magnificent Five now names, or do I try to find some performance elsewhere, whether it's small to mid caps, whether it's value? Uh, how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's hard to, you know, make a case against the Magnificent Seven with the momentum that it's enjoying. But anytime there's Magnificent in front of something, yep. uh, you know, for an investment, it makes me a little bit worried. Um, you know, I think even if even if you strip out, if you look at the Mag Seven, um, the earnings have been spectacular. And that has really driven the returns for those stocks. But even stripping those out, I think you can see some strength in large cap stocks continue through this year. And the reason for that, again, comes back to interest rates. The, the, the problem, the trouble for small stocks, and they've been really lagging, and the trouble for that is that their access to capital is weak, interest rates are high, and they're just, you know, that's just a challenge, whereas large cap names have a lot more access to capital, they can handle a little bit higher interest rates, and we're going to see some nice earnings in the large cap stocks you know, high single digit type earnings along with a dividend yield. So this is a, a nice situation where you've got um, a, a year where we can see nice gains in large cap stocks as well as um, kind of barbell over to the the strongest the quality treasury market. And, and you can have a really nice return in that type of a portfolio. Okay, so Terry, with leaning into some of the bigger stocks, are there industries or sectors that you prefer? Uh, I, you know, I think that there's there's sectors that we don't prefer. Um, right now, the energy sector has been weak, and the reason for that is that inflation's coming down. And when we look at the commodity sector, and that's another reason why we think inflation will stay cool in 2024. If you look at the prices of commodities, they've been weak, they've been negative, um, and that is that's the market telling us that inflation's going to be tame in 2024. So those sort of inflationary plays are not attractive right now. Um, the, the, you know, the obvious choice on the other end of the spectrum is, are those companies that, that do well in a low inflation environment. And those are the ones that we've seen in technology um, in the higher dividend plays, actually. I think those have been under, underheld by investors. And, there's, um, and I think that's attractive as a kind of pseudo bond play as well. All right, Terry, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, Terry Spath, founder and CIO of Zuma Wealth. They are based in Malibu, California. This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, tune in, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.